Taking a lump and putting in his teacup and stirring it, he added, I don't give it alone and hold, but mixed and diluted. In, in other words, what he was saying is that doctrine permeated uh, all that he wrote. Doctrine was a part, was, was pervasive in everything that he preached and taught, and it served to sweeten everything that he said about the kingdom of God. Now, few people like to eat sugar cubes, but they do like the effect of sugar when it gets into the bloodstream in the right proportion. And I think that's why doctrine is important. And tonight, I want to say a few things out of this text about doctrine, and it's out of tonight's text that Wade uh, uh, read for us. And in a manner of speaking, what John is giving us, kind of between the lines here, is a doctrine on doctrine. In, uh, it's sort of a Christian view of, of biblical doctrine, and it tells us a couple of things about doctrine. Doctrine exists, it has a priority, and that, that doctrine is alive. And I, you know, I'm going to break those down in the minutes that we have left to us tonight, starting out by talking that doctrine does exist. Uh, even though it may be stale and sometimes it may be a little bit dusty and a little bit dry, it does exist. And that there is an irreducible core of truth that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Let me say that again. There is an irreducible core of truth that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Look again at verse 19 and, and verse 20. John writes, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the what? The truth. There is a way to know if someone is a Christian or not, and that is to understand what it is that they believe about the Christ. And these people that John is referring to in 1 John chapter 2 have, have failed the test. They, they failed to hold on to a truth, an important truth. And the truth was, as we saw last week, that Jesus was the Christ, that He is the Son of God. Now, John is going to go over this uh, later in his writings and lay out a little more of the specifics, but basically... These folks were not just denying that Jesus was the Son of God, that He was the Messiah, the Christ, but that they were denying the Incarnation, the fact that He did not come in the flesh. Look at Second John chapter 1, verse 17. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the what? In the what? In the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. They were denying that Jesus was God who had come in the flesh. They were denying that God was breaking into history as a man, the real God becoming a real human being, the Incarnation. And John is saying that if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. You're not one of us. And so to kind of unders underscore what he's saying here, let me say this. It does matter what you believe. Now, that's not a very popular modern sentiment. Modern people today do not believe that what you believe is really important, that it's not the important thing is not so much what you believe as it is how you live. That you just need to live a good life. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, as long as you're good. It just matters that you're honest, that you help other people, people that are not as fortunate as you, or something like that. Now, the problem is that to, to say that, it, it really doesn't pan out logically. Why would you say a good life is an honest life unless that was tied to a belief somehow? That somehow your belief system was is that honesty and goodness when it comes to living that life that God has given you somehow tied together. By the same token, why would you take care of people less fortunate than yourself unless you had a belief about that? 
What makes you say that it's good to take care of the needy? Why don't we just trample on the poor and the needy? To say that's wrong betrays a belief somewhere in that thinking. There is a belief that undergirds and underscores and is the foundation for that kind of thinking. So it does matter what you believe and how you define good. I mean, how in the world would you define good unless you have some kind of belief? And quite frankly, you don't know what good is unless you have beliefs about it. This is what flows out of your beliefs, this, this idea of goodness or how you should treat other people. And to say that it doesn't matter what you believe, believe as long as you're good or you live a good life or you're, you're taking care of other people betrays a lack, really, a lack of reflection on the matter. And John says there is a irreducible, uh, an irreducible core of truth you have to maintain in order to be a Christian. That was quick. We'll go to the second one. Doctrine has a priority. I'm going to spend a little bit more time here. In this passage, at the time it was written, we have evidence that uh, what we have really is an example of a church that was not growing. This church in 1 John is not growing. And John is, is saying, is, is telling us that by the fact that they went out from us. They were not of us. They were with us, but now they are not. They are out from us. This church that John is writing to has been involved in some sort of a, of a controversy. And people were leaving the church. And evidently, there's a group of people in the church who were swayed by the Gnostic religion or the Gnostic philosophy. We talked about it a little bit last week, last week, but this teaching is somehow making its way into the church body. And as you know, the teaching of Gnosticism was that the divine Jesus or this divine spirit fell on the human Jesus at the time of his baptism. Remember the spirit descending like a dove? The Gnostics were sort of morphing that out of you know, that philosophy into sort of a, a Christian Gnosticism and saying that's when the Spirit fell on Christ, but that it fled from Him before He, he died on the cross. And so in essence, the Gnostics were saying that Jesus was really a swell guy, that He was a good guy, that He was an inspirational guy. He was a guy to pattern your life after, but He wasn't God. Jesus was good, but He wasn't God. He was not God in the flesh. Jesus was not the Christ. He was not the Son of God. And these people wanted to stay inside of the church, but to hold on to that belief at the same time. And John says, you can't. No, you can't. To believe that and, and to teach that and to say that and, and to disseminate that is, is to be a liar. And so they left. And as an aside, and, and, and maybe a, a practical one at that, John doesn't seem to be too upset. Now, I don't think that John is happy about people leaving the body of Christ. I don't think that he's happy about that at all. But at the same time, he's not willing to compromise this particular truth, this particular doctrine, in order to keep them. And that's why they left. And for John, it's more important that the truth be maintained, that the truth be professed and, and held up in importance and, and, and sort of gripped in, in integrity than for the church to grow numerically. 
Now, please, don't, don't understand what, what I'm saying here. These people that are leaving this church in Asia Minor because of this Gnostic philosophy that they've somehow uh, weaved into their understanding of what Christianity is, these, these people are not leaving over a style of worship controversy or whether there are coat racks in the foyer or whether the King James or the NI versions of the Bible are in the pew rack. The, the problem here in First John is that the gospel at its core, is being dismantled. And if Christ did not come in the flesh, then how can you be sure that your sins in the body are paid for by Christ's body? That there was a body that was sacrificed as a substitute for you in that act of, of crucifixion, in that act of atonement, that, that is substituting for you. You see, the New Testament goes to great lengths to underscore the fact that Jesus suffered in the body. That Jesus had a body, and that He suffered in that body, and that He died in that body for our sins. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His what? His body. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, He Himself bore our sins, and where did He bear them? In His where, church? His body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, and it's by His wounds that we have been healed. If, as the Gnostics taught, because matter is bad and spirit is good, the Spirit of Christ left Jesus, then Christ, right there at the, uh, before He died, then Christ did not really die for anyone's sins, and we're still in the middle of the guilt for them. The fact that Jesus came in the flesh and died for those sins was an irreducible core truth of the gospel that could not be compromised. And to not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, come in the flesh, is to not be a Christian. And John is not going to fudge on this irreducible core truth in order to have a bigger church, to have a bigger audience. But this is a thing that the 20th century in the Western world has kind of struggled with in, in, in the West over the, the, you know, the last hundred or so years. Because the belief in the miracles of the Bible, you know, that's not modern, that's not enlightened. To think and to accept those miracles in the Bible as being true and being literal is, is not modern, it's not enlightened, it's not, it's not educated, but it's more primitive and ignorant. Then all of that supernatural has to be jettisoned in order to maintain that influence. And to maintain that integrity within the culture of the, of the educated. And so the gospel was compromised for the sake of influence. And what John is saying is that you cannot deny what it is you know to be true. And then the last thing, this doctrine is a lie. It is. He says in verse 20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Understanding all of these truths, according to John, is not merely an intellectual exercise. The Spirit of God comes and helps these truths be established in you. That you can feel the power of these truths in your life. And you know that the Spirit is working on you when you read the Word or you hear a sermon or you, you attend a class and you don't walk away from that experience, that, that interaction with the Word going, you know, that was really pretty interesting. I was entertained by that. But instead you sense that word beginning to work on you and beginning to work on your, your, your heart. 
that that word has gotten a hold of your center and not just tickling your intellect. It's walking down your own personal road to Emmaus and your heart being set on fire by the truth of what Christ has accomplished by you. It's the feeling of the power of truth. And that's why Romans 8, verse 5, Paul says, you know, those who live according to the simple nature have their mind set on what the nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, in all of your speaking and in all of your what? knowledge the question is do you sense that everything in your life has to change because of god's truth do you sense that that after that interaction with god's word that 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 something of the truth has penetrated your heart and soul in such a way that there are changes that have to be made that you recognize how that, how that word has become a, a sword in your life, not just critiquing your life and judging your life, but also confirming those parts of your life that are right in God's will. And so you come out of the assemblies and you come out of the Bible classes and you come out of those, those personal readings of God's word, those devotional times each and every day, sometimes multiple times during the day, through your conversations and, 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 and through your dialogues with other Christians. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, there are things that I'm doing in this life that have got to change. And not only do you come to that conviction, but it's a true conviction because you, you feel compelled to make them because of the power of that Word coming to bear and getting a hold of your life right there at the very center. You remember the three experiences that John gives us to show that we're, we're believers, to show that we're Christian, that, that we really know, that we know that we know God. He says, you know, you've had an experience with the gospel through faith in Christ, the Son of God who came in the flesh. And he says, because of that, because of that truth, because of the way that truth has penetrated you and, and is shaping the way that you think, and, and, and not, just, not only are you spiritually being reborn, but your whole mind is being renewed, conforming to the world not really an issue anymore because of that gospel, that experience with Christ, the knowledge of the power of the atonement, the fact that you did not live the life that you should have lived, and He did, and that you did not die the death that you should die, but He did for you, and that He is interceding, and He is that advocate, that lawyer for you, before God, every day, making that case for you. When that truth gets down deep inside of you, then to obey God's commands becomes pretty natural, doesn't it? You have not just this experience with the gospel through faith in Christ, but you have this ethical change experience in which you begin to obey the commands of God. And not only that, it's not just you know, changing the way that you behave on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's also the way that you relate to one another, especially to the people that are in this room, that are part of the body of Christ. 
You know, John's going to say in another place, you know, it's not just the big things that you sacrifice for them, no greater love you know, than to lay your life down. You know that there's love when you lay your life down for the brothers. But that's a big one. And not many of us today, 21st century, have to do that. But John says, you know, that the love is really in you when you see your brother in need and needing clothing, the food, the shelter, whatever it is, and you supply those things for him. There is a relational change experience in which your, your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is it compelled by God's will, God's Word, to be different and to reflect the same kind of relationship that He had with His disciples. Do you see how these kind of go hand in hand? You know, when it comes to this doctrine, you know, doctrine is not something to be afraid of. Doctrine is something to embrace. You know, in my own life, those, those experiences with God's doctrine where you, you see the sovereignty of God. Or you see the compassion at, at a depth and in detail and in color in a way that you've never seen it before. And you're just moved. Sometimes to tears, but always to be speechless. Doctrine is that thing that, that sweetens that sweetens the preaching, the teaching, the reading of God's Word on a daily basis. And it is the irreducible core of truth you have to believe to be a disciple. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there are ways that our church can minister to you in any way at all by sharing with you what the Gospel is all about and how you access that Gospel in such a way that you become adopted by God and become His child, your sins being washed away, your life direction being changed forever and ever. God is your Father and not your enemy because of, of, of His love and compassion, the grace and your salvation, the forgiveness of your sins. Or there may be ways that we can strengthen you if there are, are places in your life that you feel a struggle a fight, a wrestling with, with things that are of darkness rather than of light. And if we can minister to you anyway, there are shepherds down here at the front to talk to you. Let's stand and sing this song together. Side of the Lord, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up, and He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And He, He died for us. And He, He died for us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, that saved a wretch like me. Please remain standing. If you would like to take the Lord's Supper this evening, been prepared in the room in the back. If you go there while we sing this final hymn, someone will be there to serve you. Oh, how I love Jesus.
There is a name I love 